0: Amen. Um, yeah, it's good to see you all this morning, and uh, we have. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, this is, and is, you're just like, "Wow, you're the you're the pastor." That makes sense. Uh, if you're here more than just this week, and you're here all the time, like, well, "Wow, where have you been?" Uh, I've been gone for the, uh, the last month. Uh, we we took a sabbatical. Uh, that you graciously made possible for us. Uh, we drove uh, a little over 6,500 miles in our in our endeavors in the four weeks. Um, touched uh, I don't know I think 19 states I can't remember. Um, but the the pinnacle of that is uh, we were uh, we were finishing up school. So Jaceh finished a seminary or a pastor's wife certificate, and I finished my my doctorate in ministry. And um, so I just have a little. See- Stop, 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 stop. So, uh, I do have something for you all, though. So, it says, The Alumni Association of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, with the full realization that higher education is attained by students through the love and devotion, encouragement and inspiration, the loyalty and the sacrifices of family and friends, this certificate of appreciation is hereby awarded by Zane Officer to Libby Baptist Church. I don't know what we're going to do with it, but it's for you all. Um, I don't know. You can pass it around from week to week. Um, But... But yeah, it, it was a long time in, in doing it. But it really, um, without y'all, it, it doesn't happen. Uh, it wasn't just, it, it wasn't just me reading after the kids go to bed every night for however many many years that was. Um, it, <laughs> uh, e- so Ezra, our, our seven year old, has informed me that I'm not a real doctor because I can't give you medication. So. <laughs> He's he's not wrong, so I, don't worry about it going to my head. I have plenty of people at home that are they're not even going to let it get there. Uh, but this morning uh, we are starting into the letter or the book of Second Timothy. Uh, so before uh, we finished up at the end of April, we finished up First Timothy. We're we're jumping into Second Timothy this week. Um, Second Timothy, as we see, well, we're not going to do a ton of background on it. Um, But just by way of getting us a little bit familiar with the letter before we jump in, we're going to see it pretty clearly that 2 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a guy named Timothy, same as the recipient of 1 Timothy. He was a co-laborer, a co-missionary with Paul. He had traveled with Paul all around in his missionary journey. And then Paul had left him behind uh, on purpose. It wasn't like, oh no, he missed the dock time on the cruise. Like he left him behind in Ephesus to take care of one of the churches that that Paul had helped to to start in Ephesus, which was uh, it, so it was not a place that had a, a, a whole long uh, illustrious history of of knowing about the god of the old testament the the hebrew god it was a it was actually uh in acts chapter 19 you can see a pretty good uh overview of of what was going on in ephesus it was uh the hub of a city that that was devoted to a a greek goddess uh and, and and the silversmiths there like had they had a thriving booming business in making idols to this other god and in the midst of that there's this church that starts in ephesus paul tells Timothy to stay there, establish the church. And then we get these letters from Paul to Timothy that are encouraging him in his role in staying in Ephesus and building up the church. Um, a little side note, this is, so 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that he writes. Uh, so of all the, the Pauline letters, if you want to say that in the New Testament, and there's 15 of them, Second uh, Timothy is the final letter that Paul writes. And he writes it from prison. Uh, you go, well, didn't he write 1 Timothy from prison? He kind of wrote 1 Timothy from house arrest, and he writes 2 Timothy from, like, prison. And it's shortly, sometime, we're not we're not real sure, but but shortly after he writes 2 Timothy, Paul is actually put to death. He's beheaded by the Roman government and uh, in pretty close proximity to when the apostle Peter is also put to death by the Roman government. Uh, and so so we're getting the last recorded letter of Paul to Timothy or to anybody else, uh, and you would expect, right, if Paul's in prison, prison's horrible in the first century. I can't imagine it's really great now either, uh, but it's really horrible in the first century. Um, if you ever have the chance to go to Rome, you, you can actually, like, go down into where the prison is, and it's, it's basically, like, you think prison, like, with with, with cells and, and nice, like, amenities, like a toilet in the corner. Um, in, in this prison in Rome, it is hewn out of like rock in the ground, and it has like a hole, and they would just drop them into this hole in the ground. So when we get to the tail end of the letter, when Paul asked Timothy to bring him a cloak, it all of a sudden starts to make a little bit more sense Why? Uh, he's probably always cold in this, uh, and it's just, it's dark, it's dank, it's nasty. And you would almost expect that to cloud how Paul writes his letter to Timothy, right? That it would just be like kind of marked by this like melancholy, life's not so great. Uh, but what we find instead is is Paul encouraging fiercely Timothy to stay in the race running after Jesus, uh, with joy and with purpose, even though Paul will say later, I'm imprisoned because of this. But he's going to encourage Timothy, in, even in spite of Paul's own circumstances, he's encouraging Timothy to stay in the fight, stay in ministry, stay in and locked in God's purpose for his life. So we're going to look at this morning 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. This is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You probably, oh, I know that last verse. we, We talk about that one all the time. Uh, if we're just walking through this verse by verse, one of the things that I want to spend just a little bit of time on is, is really the first three words in in, in in the letter. It says, Paul, an apostle. I don't want to take for granted that everybody just come, came in this morning and goes, I know exactly what an apostle is. Anybody like anybody, feel like super confident, like in multiple choice, like I could get an apostle? Maybe on a multiple choice. Do you feel like you could do it really well on like write your own answer and definition? Zach, you pass. You see Zach's like, yes, I got this one. Okay. So in the simplest, we're just going to walk through this really quickly. In the simplest rendering of the word apostle, it means one who is sent with a message. However, we're going to get it slightly more complex. Because uh, one of the reasons why we're spending a little bit extra time on this is, is that there are, maybe not so much in Libby, but, but even people traveling into Libby in the summertime, we see it at times, people who call themselves apostle so-and-so. Uh, or it will, be, it will be publicized as Apostle so and so is coming to do a, a revival or coming to do an evangelistic outreach or Apostle so and so. Or if you turn on, I don't know, if you watch Christian uh, Broadcasting Network, Trinity Broadcasting, or any one of those, you might see uh, Apostle so and so, like, you know, their time. You go, what is that? Okay, so in the simplest reading, it's just one sent with a message. You go, oh, well, that seems legitimate. However, I want to get us a little bit more complex to the way that Paul uses the word apostle and and the way that the early church understood the word apostle, because I think that helps us a little bit in differentiating what it means now versus what it means then and whether or not they're the same thing. So in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writing to a different set of churches in a different region, in Galatians chapter 1 verses 18 through 22 Paul gives, he's, he's relaying his story. He relays how he came to faith in Jesus, how he encountered, like, what he was doing, persecuting the church, and how he encountered Jesus, and Jesus radically changed his life. And then he gives the follow-up of, this is what happened after the Damascus Road, right? And so he talks about how for three years, he he was kind of like in the backwaters of nowhere, growing in the faith and. and teaching in, in a church setting, but he wasn't front and center. He, wasn't, he didn't immediately launch into his missionary endeavors. But in verse 18, Galatians chapter 1, he says, Then after three years, so three years after Damascus, it says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or who, who's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. What's interesting about that is, is if we take the simplest rendering and say an apostle is one sent with a message, then every believer in Christ is an apostle. You're sent with a message. You're sent with the gospel. You are commissioned to go and share the good news of what Jesus has done. Wherever you go, that's the whole heart of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Well, who's to make Disciples. Disciples are. What's a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Or so. So if every believer is commissioned a, a, as one sent with a message, then it would be weird of Paul to say, "But I I met with Peter, but none of the other apostles." And it's like, so he didn't he didn't talk to any other believers while he was in. That would be weird, wouldn't it? But instead, he says, like, so he is recognizing and writing to the Galatian church, which was not in Jerusalem, right? It's in this other region up and away. He's saying. There is a recognizable group of people in the early church who are apostles. Peter being one of them, he says, James, the Lord's brother, is another one. And he says, but I didn't see any of the other ones. So then that goes, okay, well, what, Paul, who are, like, who are they? Right, like, if Peter is one and James is one, he goes, I didn't see any of the other ones. It would be really nice right there to get a list. Right, I didn't see this guy, 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 I didn't see this guy. And so he said, I didn't see any of the other ones. So then, I want us to go into Acts chapter 1. I'm just kind of filling this out, because I think it is helpful, it is necessary, words matter, here, now, and everywhere. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. This is right after the resurrection, Jesus has... Uh, has, has ascended into heaven he 's told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and as they 're gathered in the upper room they, they they take stock of themselves right and they and they go, there were twelve of us, twelve that were in the closest circle to Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus, just killed himself so now what and in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and following, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all, about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. That's a really nice little footnote in Scripture, isn't it? This is how Judas died. This is like this is what happened after he hung himself. Like, wow, that's really graphic. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called, in their own language, a that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, so what Peter is just saying... The scripture had to be fulfilled. Somebody had to betray Jesus. It was Judas. We all know about Judas. This is what happened to Judas. Everybody in Jerusalem knows what happened to Judas. Now, let somebody else rise and take his place. So, this is Peter's, this is the so. Right? There's the, A spot's got to be filled. How do we fill it among the 12 of us? He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they put two people forward, and then they, like, they in a really, like, if we read it in our eyes, we go, really spiritual matter, they, like, cast dice for him, and they go, it should be Matthias. Right? Like, they, they cast lots, but going back all the way to Proverbs, like, the Lord determines the falling of the lots, all of those things, right? But so, we get this... Insight for the early disciples, the early apostles, the early 11, they said in order for somebody to rise up and fill this spot of Judas, they have to have been with Jesus in the beginning, from baptism all the way through ascension. They have to have witnessed him in his resurrection and they had to have taken part in his ministry, like going in and coming out with him. Now that kind of starts to raise a question. If, if you're with me so far, you know, if that's a witness of the resurrection, somebody who is with Jesus through all of His ministry, um, somebody who witnessed His baptism all the way through to His ascension, if we stopped right there, does anybody coming to Libby this summer or next summer meet that requirement? No, right. So, so, so Paul is saying, like, I didn't meet any of these guys, any of the apostles, didn't meet with any of them. So then, the second question that should pique your interest: You go, like, well, how does Paul call himself an apostle if he wasn't with Jesus from his baptism all the way through? Anybody, anybody, immediately have that thought? You go, know, wait, wait a minute, Paul, you just said you didn't meet with any of them, but now you're calling yourself in Second Timothy, you're saying you were an apostle. Now, we do know that Paul is a witness of the resurrection because on the Damascus Road, Jesus appears to him and speaks to him and says this, is like setting him apart for a special ministry to non-Jewish people. And yet, at the same time, he still wasn't with Jesus from the beginning. Now, what I find fascinating about this is if the early church was like, and, and I'm partly going here as well because uh, sometimes we like to poop on Paul because he's like, well, Paul said it, that wasn't Jesus. Right, like, well, Paul says all this stuff about um, like current events, but that wasn't like Jesus didn't really speak to that. Now, what would be interesting is if if there was another apostle somewhere in Scripture that would talk about Paul in a way that would reveal like what how did the early church view Paul? So, go to Second Peter chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen. Okay, so so it, it, Paul wasn't there from beginning to end. Seems like from from stand, some standpoints, people might go, "Well, that seems like he maybe shouldn't be calling himself this." But in, in Peter's final letter, as he's writing to believers, Second Peter chapter three verses fourteen through sixteen, it's interesting. Uh, this would be a, a you would expect, especially in all of the New Testament letters, there is a whole lot of ink spent on correcting errors within the early church. People who are trying to exert control in a way that is not in step with who Jesus is. Like Paul spends, like the whole letter of Galatians, right, is like, you were running a good race. I'm so amazed that you are, you're so quick to abandon it and there's all these other people telling you all these other things. The Corinthians letters, he's, he's talking about these people call themselves super apostles. Well, let me give you my credentials, right? There, there's so much spent on who somebody says that they are. So you would expect that if Peter was like, this bozo is calling him an Paul, he wasn't even there from the beginning. He would say, and Paul is kind of out of line here. But instead, what Peter says, he says, Therefore, beloved, he's talking to the church, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by them without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, notice this, just as our beloved brother Paul. He could have said, like, he, like if he had an issue with Paul, or the other apostles had an issue with Paul, Peter would not be encouraging the church to read Paul's letters. He says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. This would be the opportune time for Peter to say, Hit the brakes. Paul is out of line. You've been getting a lot of letters from this guy named Paul, hold on, he's not an apostle, he's not with us, he's not, he's doing his own thing. And instead, what does Peter say? Our beloved brother. And and keep in mind, Paul has been in meetings with Peter. Paul also says that he's called Peter out before because Peter was acting wrongly towards Gentile believers at different spots. If there was ever a time for Peter to, to set the record straight and say, just a minute, Paul's a lovely guy, but he's not authoritative, it would be about right now, wouldn't it? Instead, he endorses and he says, just as Paul has been writing, I have been writing you, so has Paul been writing you, encouraging you in these things. So then the question might be right after that is, well, are there still apostles today? And, and I would say, if here's, here's my personal opinion on this based off of what we've just looked at and based off of the scope of Scripture, if somebody titles themselves apostle or is okay with somebody else titling them as apostle, it should send up a giant red flag for you in your mind. You go, wait a minute. Because what they are doing is trying to set themselves up and above as more authoritative than God's word and his authority. They're all saying that what I have to say supersedes what you might hear from someone else. What it also opens the door for is notice that the apostles writing in the New Testament are establishing the canon of the New Testament. So so what we now hold as the New Testament in our Bibles, we are saying is is taken straight from eyewitnesses who worked and lived and, and breathed with Jesus. So that what they are teaching and what they have, what is inspired by God's Spirit, is also inspired by, that's why John can say in his letters, we have seen and we have beheld, like we've touched him with our own hands, right? Like we're eyewitnesses to who Jesus is. But what this would open the door to is if we say, well, there's still apostles and there's still these guys who have authority to speak these things, is, well, God's word could be changing because the apostle said. Scripture's pretty clear that nothing is to be added or taken away from it. So that's why we're spending a little bit of extra time here at the beginning of 2 Timothy. If I lost you, you can jump back on board right about now. But notice what he says: Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't decide on his own to become an apostle or to become a follower of Jesus. In fact, like, like Jesus pretty much like knocked him to the ground, literally stopping him in his tracks in order to get his attention i would argue that none of us in this room are invited into salvation apart from the will of god like it is god's and in 1st timothy we saw this this idea that paul says it's a it's a trustworthy statement jesus came into the world to do what save sinners like this is the highest, like, this is, this is God's great design. His great desire is to see people brought into his family, to be brought into a right restored relationship with him. It's not just for Paul. You could, you could put your name in there and cross out the apostle part, but, but, but Zane, a believer in Christ by the will of God according to the promise of, of life that is in Christ Jesus. You could put your name there and say a follower of Jesus according to the will of God. Like, you you didn't pull a fast one on God and say, I'm in the family, you didn't notice, you didn't catch me, I've been here long enough, I've been at the table, you've been feeding me, so I guess you can keep me now. Right? Like, nobody comes in on accident. And in fact, God sets his design and his eyes on saving people. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, he sang a bunch of songs about it this morning, that, that God made a way intentionally and on purpose to bring people into a right relationship with himself. He did that by sending his eternal son to take on flesh, to step out of glory, to step into humanity and to live a perfect life to die for us. You know, why did he have to die? He had to die because you and I deserve death. And from from beginning to end in Scripture, it may be an uncomfortable truth that we don't like to think about, but Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because we have departed away from God's right and perfect design and pursued our own agenda, we have stepped into a, a realm of earning and meriting God's righteous justice. And God, being perfect and holy, cannot be with sinful people. But God, because of his great love for us, makes a way through his son, inviting us in. And you go, well, if that doesn't demonstrate the will of God to save people, I don't know what else I could tell you. God did not just sit back and go, wow, humanity is really screwed up. I made it pretty good. They messed it up. I guess they'll sort it out. He actively stepped in engaging A plan of salvation that you and I could not do for ourselves. So before we go any farther, a great question for you this morning is, have you experienced God's gift of grace through Jesus? Have you received this gift of grace that brings life in Christ? Because if you haven't, then most of what else we talk about this morning will make zero sense. when We start talking about the grace, mercy, and peace that come from God. That doesn't come apart any other way up than, than through a right faith in Jesus. So then he says to Timothy, my beloved child, and we could again, hit the skid break really quick. He calls Timothy his beloved child, and yet he's not Timothy's parent. Because in Acts, we see that, that, that Timothy has a, a Greek dad. He has a Jewish mom. A, here in, in verse 5, his mom is named. Her name is Eunice. We don't see anything named about his dad, but it's like, what? Well, how can Timothy, like, that's weird language. But Paul says, to Timothy, my beloved child, he's not, he's not Timothy's biological parent, but he took Timothy in, and in the book of Acts, we've looked at this before, but he, he takes Paul in as a co-laborer, co-missionary in the gospel. And now you see in his letters, his heart for Timothy to see Timothy mature in the faith, but also the relationship between Timothy, between Paul. Paul is invested in, personally, deeply in Timothy's life. And we could stop really quickly right there and just ask another question. How important are other followers of Jesus to you in your life? Not Not just logistically to help you to mature to maturity, but relationally, how important are other followers of Jesus to you in your life? How invested are you in somebody else who also follows Jesus? Is that, does that have any importance to you? Is there, is there any inkling of I I really want to not just not just so that I can bulk up my spiritual stats and say, like, hey, I'm investing in somebody, but out of our hearts for them to see them growing into the fullness of who Jesus is and relationally seeing them. Grow, how important is that to us? Are relationships important to us? And I, I would say we're, we're kind of in a, in a weird cultural moment, aren't we? I mean, like, uh, maybe it's been that way for a while, but I, I think about this in terms of just family. Uh, up until our, our parents moved here, our, our nearest family, as far as direct family parents, siblings, were like 400 miles away. For many of you, it's it's probably the same way. You either grew up far removed from family or you're at this point, if you're in Libby, Montana, there's a good chance, unless you were born here, you're probably not logistically, geographically close to family. And yet, God's design for us to be in a relationship doesn't go away just because we're away from family. And and beyond that, God has created out of the, the goodness of his mercy and grace, he has given us the local body of the church to be family. Not, not just to worship together for an hour during on a Sunday and then go our separate ways where we never interact with any other aspect of each other's lives. But he has given us to each other as a gift of grace for us to grow in and to blossom in relationally and to push each other towards maturity in Christ. Like, So in the nicest way I could say, if you're not connecting with other believers regularly, not just in worship, but I mean regularly connecting with them, you're missing out on one of God's great gifts of grace to you. One of his great designs of seeing you grow, but seeing you fulfill your purpose and who he has made you to be as part of his family. I have a whole list of ideas of ways for you to connect with other people. But one of the easiest ways, and you'll hear about it at the end of the service, but one of the easiest ways is connect to a small group that you sit down and share a meal, and you actually wrestle through things of personal and spiritual life together. But notice he says, to Timothy, my beloved child. like This is somebody that Paul has done this with. My beloved child, this your person that is precious to me. Not just because I left you in Ephesus in charge of the church, but because of who you are, Timothy. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Which is is kind of, we could just take it as, well, that's just a stock um, greeting. It's in a lot of Paul's letters. Grace, mercy, and peace. But if you just stop, again, really quickly. You're like, wow, you're stopping a lot. We just define these terms really quickly. Grace. Getting what we don't deserve. Like, this is getting good things that you and I do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Now, a lot of times we talk about grace and mercy almost interchangeably, and they're, like, they're kind of like opposite ends of a coin, right? You're, you're getting what you, you don't deserve. You're not getting what you do deserve. Now, let's just flesh that out for just a minute. Like In, in Christ, he says, because it comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What good things in Christ... Do we not deserve that we have received eternal life, peace with God, peace with people, the righteousness of God? Future, hope, eternal, uh, and, and, and it's easy to say eternal life like life that doesn't end, but like eternal life that is without sin, without blemish, without stain, without any like, eternity with God. We deserved reconciliation. Like, what well, we didn't deserve, but we received reconciliation. We received forgiveness. We, we, we could continue to go and, and probably uh, just spend the rest of our time doing that. But mercy, not getting what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve eternal separation, the exact opposite of eternal life. We we deserve eternal separation from the God who made us. We deserve the full weight of God's holy justice for stepping out and away from him. Our sin deserves brokenness. Brokenness in our workplaces, brokenness in our marriages, brokenness in our parenting, brokenness in every aspect of who we are. That's, that's what our sin deserves. And yet, because of his great mercy, we don't receive all that we deserve. In fact, all that we deserve was laid not on us, but it was laid on Jesus. Jesus. And, and all that we don't deserve that belonged to Jesus was then given to us by grace and peace, the right and restored relationship with God. And all of this is rooted in, this is, this is the, the gift of God in Christ. So one of the things that, that might be a good reflection as you, as, you, as you walk away this morning and you think about this in the days to come is, is how have I experienced grace? How have I experienced mercy? How does God's peace show up in my life because of Jesus? And, and, and spend a few moments actually really thinking about that functionally rather than just reading it, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Okay, next verse. Verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As we come into verses 3 through 7, Paul is going to lay out three uh, remembrances, three things that he remembers. The first one you see here is he says, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. But he also says that he, he serves God as did his ancestors, which is kind of an interesting phrase because it, the, Christianity is like brand new when Paul is writing. His ancestors he's talking about is, is, is the Israelites who followed God in faith. Uh, so Christianity is not just this brand new thing, but it's also a fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. All of God's work in and through his people in the Old Testament is now fulfilled and seen carrying over into the new. He says he does it with a clear conscience, which is a requirement of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, they must hold to the faith with a clear conscience. right? And he says, I do this. I serve God with a clear conscience. And he says, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. He could have just said, I constantly remember you in my prayers. But then he goes on to even like solidify. He says, all the time, night and day, unceasingly, Timothy, I pray for you. I'm reminded of you. I remember you constantly. And again, we're, we're, we're talking about this the importance of Paul and Timothy's lives together. They're mutually beneficial to one another. He says, because as I remember your tears. The second thing, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Like Timothy, when we left, you were really sad. I would love to come to you and make you happy. But he says, I, I, I remember your tears and I, and, and I long to see you because it fills me with great joy to be with you. It's not just Timothy gets all of, like He's not just a leech on Paul and he gets everything and Paul is like, wow, that was draining. Right? It's mutual. Like they're, they're, Even though Paul has poured his life into Timothy, he's also, he's the richer for doing it. And again, if we were just to flesh that out a little bit, how often do we view other people as a drain on us rather than it's our great joy to be able to invest life together? And then he says, so he he remembers him constantly in prayer. He remembers his tears, uh, which also could carry over into, into Acts chapter 20 when, it says when Paul left the Ephesian elders, like they, he basically told them, "I'm never going to see you guys again." Right? He was on his way. He like he knew he was going back to Jerusalem, and he had intentions to go to Rome. And he's like, I'm, like "I started the church. I'm never coming back." And there's this moment where like they all weep over each other. You're like, "Wow, there's a, like, a lot of crying in Scripture, right?" Uh, and Paul's like, and, "And Timothy, I remember your tears." It's not clear whether or not this happened at the same time or when or when they departed and went their own ways. But it wasn't just like a. Wow, I've learned everything I can from you. That was really great. I'm so happy to get away from you now. Right? He said, and then I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And then he gives Timothy a reminder of, of Timothy's, if you want to say his spiritual legacy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Now again I just want to give a, a, a little clarifying thought on that. The, one of the questions that you might raise at that point is does if if I follow Jesus, does that guarantee that my children or grandchildren will follow Jesus? And no, it does not. And 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 and, and again, if someone tells you that, that it does, run away. However, oftentimes we might minimize Again, another gift of grace of growing up in a home where Jesus is cherished. And what better place, if you, if, if you are a follower of Jesus and, and you either have kids or are planning to have kids or you have grandkids or are hoping to have grandkids, what better gift can you give to your children or your grandchildren than to daily live out your faith in the hope of Jesus with them in the everyday mundane things of life. You are at ground zero of imparting the most important thing that could ever happen to them, sharing that with them in everything that comes up throughout the day. I think we often think of sharing our faith as being these profound moments, and sometimes it is profound moments of grace where God just opens the door and allows us to share the gospel. For some of you, some of the most profound moments for you to, to give your faith to someone is in the mundane, everyday things with your, your children and your grandchildren. In the way that you interact with your spouse, in the way that you interact with them, in the way that you show grace, in the way that you explain what forgiveness is, in the way that you explain what you have received and what you did. Like, like when you walk through what grace and mercy are, and there are countless opportunities to do that in a day-in, day-out basis with children. Whether they're 2 or 12. or You have an opportunity to model the gospel for them and i'm talking about a difference of uh, 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 the gift of being raised in a christian home i'm not just talking about a, a home where you attended church and then nothing else was ever said about jesus during the week i'm talking about living out your faith in jesus day in and day out and again we're back to that relational thing how important is this relationship to me what is what is my greatest aspiration for my children and my grandchildren is it for them to learn how to hit a fastball? Or is it for them to learn about how much God cares for them and how he's made them and how he's created them to know him and to walk with him? Is it for them to get a good, good, good grades on their report card so they can go to the nicest school or they can do this thing or they do this thing? Or is it so that they would know how to fix a car so they can be a mechanic and live out their dream of having a job and supporting a family? Or is it teaching them what it means to follow Jesus with their whole heart? I'm not saying like you don't teach them how to hit a fastball. I'm not saying you don't, you don't encourage them to do their best in school. But what is most important to you? What is your highest aim and your highest value for your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews? What, like what is the thing that you most want them to be? And honestly, sometimes we might just look at them and go, I just don't want them to be in jail someday. Aim higher. And don't diminish or look down on, like, you, 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 I don't know, Like I, maybe it was from being an 80s and a 90s kid. It was like, you used to hear, like, the people that got to share their testimony in church all the time were like the ones that came out of drugs and, and prison and motorcycle gangs and, I don't know, selling pixie dust on the street or whatever it was. And he was like, wow, my, my testimony is really lame. Like, my story of, of of coming to Jesus is like, it, I grew up going to church and, and realized my need for Jesus. That's like That's a pretty quick thing, right? And yet, it, it, as I've gotten older, um, I, I went into pastoral ministry for the first time, at, I think I was 23, 24, and, um, which is kind of young, to be honest with you. Uh, and I used to get kind of offended that people were like, yeah, you're young for a pastor. And sometimes even still, like, huh, you're young. And, and the more the older I get, the more I realize, yeah, uh, older pastors are usually a lot smarter. Um, but one of the things that people would also say to me, and, and some of the older pastors that I, I met would say is... Um, I wish that I had, I wish I had been able to start earlier like you because you were raised in the family that you were. Some of them had lived that hard life, and and God graciously and amazingly saved them, and they started pastoring in their forties and said, "I wish I had twenty more years." Don't diminish what God has given you. You might just go, oh, "Man, I'd, I've been repressed from experiencing all the world has to offer, this, so then I could come to Jesus later." Like. If your family has, has, has modeled walking with Jesus for you and you've come to faith knowing him because of the godly example of your parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, church family, that's a gift of grace that you should never look down on and go, oh, I wish I had a different story. Like, and Paul reminds me, he's like, you have this, like, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that runs in your mother and your grandmother, and I'm sure it lives in you as well. And then if out of these three remembrances, he says, for this reason, so I have three remembrances, but now, Timothy, I'm going to remind you of something that I want you to remember. It says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. So three times, I remember you constantly in my prayers. I remember your tears. I remember your sincere faith. Now I remind you, for this reason, fan into flame the gift of God. Uh, we live in a place where you, we probably do quite a few campfires. How many of you ever, like, you had to fan a flame a little bit? You had smolders. You, like, you, there was some life, but it like, man, it's, it's if we don't do something, it's going to go out. You ever been there? And you start like you're you're on all fours and you're blowing like in the opposite direction of the fire, right? That's how that works. And if the fire's over here, you're fanning over here, right? No, like fanning the flame is like it's a directed, intentional, with a, with a with a with a purpose in mind, right? If you're fanning a flame that is is smoking and smoldering, but it's not quite a, a lit, you are putting directed effort right into that thing. And Paul says the thing for Timothy is the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, which could echo 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where he says uh, the, the gift that was given to you through the laying on the hands of elders. But it, again, brings us back to the corporate nature. In other words, the body nature, the, the community nature of our faith in Jesus. All right? Timothy was set apart not just because he wanted to be set apart. He was set apart because the church recognized that he ought to be set apart. And now Timothy, Paul is encouraging him to keep that in mind and to fan into flame what he is doing. Not to grow cold, not to grow complacent, not to just sit back and watch it dwindle, but to see it alive and consuming. And then he gives a rationale for it. He says, because God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of one of power and love and self-control. And it's not really clear Beyond this, whether Timothy is, is experiencing like these major bouts of like fearfulness, but it is interesting that Paul is encouraging him not to be afraid in his circumstances and it draws our attention to the fact that we can look at a lot of biblical characters, biblical personalities, and we can assume wrongfully so that that, that walking a life of faith was just it just came natural and it was easy for them. If it came easy for them and it was just natural, it would be foolish of Paul to to spend ink and paper to say, "Hey, by the way, fan into flame because you're not to be fearful." Like if he was just confident that this comes easy to Timothy, he would spend his time telling him to do something else, not to be intentional about using the things that God has given him. The idea of fear here is is one who runs away from battle or to be a, like to be a coward. A, "God didn't give us a spirit of cowardice that runs away." But one instead, power of love and self-control, one that runs in with control. And this echoes from the very beginning of the church. One of the things that they prayed for. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, we're going we're to close here. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John uh, were just arrested and they were taken in front of the religious leaders. The same religious leaders who had like 40 days before that or or a couple months before that had just uh, arrested Jesus, convicted Jesus, crucified Jesus. right? And now two of his followers, Peter and John, are in the same boat. And you can imagine fear would probably be among the, the list of things that you might feel if you were in the same place that Jesus was just in and he ended up carrying a cross to Golgotha. But it says that they were released, and then they go back and they meet with the church, and they're like, wow, we're, we're, we're experiencing difficulty because of this message. And the temptation in, in their day and the temptation in our day might be, "Oh, we might need to figure out how to soften this message. We might need to make find a way to make this message a little bit more palatable that people that are in our context might appreciate a little bit more. That they might be more receptive of it because what we just shared just got us in this harder spot. And instead, this early church in Jerusalem has a worship service. They lifted their voices together. This starts in verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, they they recognized that God's plan and salvation revolved around Jesus' suffering and dying under Herod and Pontius Pilate. But then they said, And now, Lord, in light of them breathing out threats against us, they said, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. An opportunity to, to respond with an incredible amount of fear. We should probably go to a different community that appreciates us more. We should probably go somewhere where, they, where they're not trying to arrest us and take us before the council. Instead, so they worship and they ground themselves in God's word. They ground themselves in God's purpose. And then they say, help us not shrink back. Help us to be bold. While And notice, though, that this is important in verse 30. While you, While you, Lord, stretch out your hand and while you work, help us to be bold. There's an important aspect here. Like the, the, We as a church are called to be bold witnesses of who Jesus is, but it is Jesus and his spirit who do the work. But God works through his people, boldly proclaiming the truth of who he is. And it says, and the incredible thing, verse 31, is the, the immediate effect of that. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness in Jerusalem. If you just survey through the book of Acts, Paul experiences all kinds of hardships, and yet he continues to do what? Speak the word of God with all boldness. In Ephesus, they they throw a riot. The silversmiths that build idols to this goddess, they, they throw a riot trying to kill Paul and the early Christians. Furious that they're cutting into their business. Furious that they're cutting into their worship. This is the very place that Paul leaves Timothy. In a place that they're not super stoked to have a church. In this place, he tells Timothy, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. God hasn't called you to be a coward. He has called you to follow him because he's the one who gives power, love, and self-control. Those things don't naturally flow from us. Most of us, would. if we were asked, would you like to be a little bit more in control of yourself? Right? Yeah, I probably would. I would love to not fly off the hammer, um, fly off the handle. I right? love to, to, to guard my tongue a little bit better. I probably love to, to, to direct uh, a loving attitude towards people better. I would love to, to speak in this way to people. I would love to be able to not do this. I would love to not, right? Like, when, when we're in control of the driver's seat, more often than that, we go, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't done that. Self control is a gift that God gives. The power that he talks about is not a power that we just contrive of ourselves. It's, it's the boldness that comes from Him. The ability to love people sacrificially is not one that comes naturally to us. It's not something that we look naturally to do. Is how can I die to myself and live for Your benefit? Yeah, that's what Paul. That's the reason why Paul says, "Fan it into flame." This is this is what this looks like. It doesn't look like this. It looks like this by God's grace. Will he help us to live boldly for him? Intentionally pouring into one another's lives and the lives of other people. Intentionally sharing with boldness the good news of who Jesus is, the grace he's given, the mercy he extends, the peace that is offered through Jesus. But one last question I would would ask you to to just examine in your life this week. Where is fear showing up in my spiritual life? Where is fear showing up in in my response to Jesus? And not just where is fear showing up, but where is fear controlling? because right? like it's not it's not wrong to see something. go, Wow, that's scary. Right, but Proverbs talks about like the guy who, who who doesn't leave his house because there might be a lion in the street. Right, that's that's a, that's a fear that is dominating that is not realistic. And 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 the antidote of what we see in Second Timothy and throughout Scripture is the reason why the reason why the, the authors of Scripture through the Holy Spirit can be bold enough to and, uh, and audacious enough to tell us not to be afraid is because of the one who sits in control. If God is in control of all things and and and, and orchestrating all things and 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 purposing all things and empowering His people to do the things He calls them to. What do we have to fear? But if we take stock of our lives, I bet we go, wow, there's, there's a little bit of a fear-filled response to this. I'm going to stop preaching. I can keep going. You pray with me.